Welcome to Tales of Britain and Ireland. This is a podcast telling the stories, legends and folk tales of Britain and Ireland in no particular order. Presented by Graham and coming direct from South Yorkshire, each episode tells a story or selection of stories from all across these islands and throughout their history, followed by a short and decidedly inexpert discussion of the origin and themes of each tale. And welcome back everyone. Sorry it's been a long time, etc, etc. You know the drill by now. Just before we go into the story, I really would like to give thanks to everyone who's been supporting the podcast with kind comments, with reviews, and on Patreon. It really makes a world of difference. I am aware that this podcast is quite irregular, shall we say. However, despite that, I'm absolutely committed to it, because I really enjoy doing it. And I've actually now put in place some fairly concrete steps that will ensure that next year there's a lot more podcast. For those of you who have not joined Patreon, there are already two supporters episodes on there, and more will follow. Also, as you may have already noticed, this is a very long episode. The longest that I've done, in fact. I considered splitting it into two, to give free total for this branch of the Mabinogion, but there just wasn't a natural split I could find that didn't disrupt the flow of the tale. This second part of the second branch of the Mabinogion is a bit of a beast, with twists and turns, but it's also one of my favourite tales from all of British mythology. I hope it being so long isn't a problem, and that you can still enjoy it. Feedback on that, and whether I've made the right decision, welcome as always. Right, that done with, on with the story. After last time's rather slow episode, I can assure you that this time some stuff is definitely going to happen. But first, a recap is in order, and unfortunately it's going to have to be a somewhat lengthy one. So, previously on Tales of Britain and Ireland. Back in the far mists of time, the island of the mighty, that is the British mainland, is ruled over by a family of magical mythological misfits quite unlike the current royal family. At the head of them all is Bendigeirthran, or Bran the Blessed, the Crow King. He's a giant who can't fit indoors, so gets to live his life in high-status tents. A proper glamper is our Bran. He has one full brother, Manawedon, who's the regular dude of this family, and two half-brothers, Nishin, who's a nice guy, but an actual nice guy, not one of those, air quotes, nice guys, and Evnishian. Evnishian's the one who got given a nice big bag of negative adjectives at birth. Cunning, angry, cruel, etc. Oh, and he's also got the supernatural strength of a small tank. Supernatural, that is, for a man. Not a tank with supernatural strength for a tank. And they also have a sister, Branwyn, whose primary attributes that we know about are, quite disappointingly, firstly, how much of a top-shelf stunner she is, And secondly, she is defined by the distance, or lack thereof, that she has maintained in relation to a penis. Now, in the first part of our tale, Mafolach, King of the Irish, turned up in Britain with a diplomatic proposal, that he, being a king in all, would make a fitting husband for Branwyn. Bran and his advisers agreed, no one cared what Branwyn thought, and they married her off. Huzzah! All was good. Well, 
except that, by a perfectly innocent omission, they didn't tell resident scumbag brother Evnishian that Branwyn was getting married. This led to a whole thing where Evnishian horribly mutilated a load of Mephollic's horses, Mephollic's the Irish king, do keep up, which understandably upset the Irish. Now, for reasons that are unclear, Bran couldn't just address this with his half-brother and bring him to justice, but he did eventually smooth things over with Mephollic, but only by giving him lots of horses, a whole load of gold and some silver. Oh, yes, and also by giving him a cauldron that could resurrect the dead, which seems a lot, but never underestimate how much a rich person will mark up the value of their hurt feelings. And, after all that was settled, back to Ireland, Mephollock went with Branwyn, and all his various compensation. Now, to my mind, Mephollock had definitely come out on top of this whole incident, but inexplicably, this was not the opinion of the King's Irish advisers. Now, a couple of years passed, during which Branwyn and Mephollock had a child. And yet, despite the couple getting along, despite all the riches Mephollock had from the deal, the advisers remained unhappy about what had happened with Evnishian and those horses. And they devised an absolutely incredible plan for revenge, subtle and intricate, that would see Evnishian and Bran suffer. No, no, they didn't devise any such plan, that was a total lie. Instead, they made Branwyn into their cook, and, rather horribly, they ordered that she was to be beaten across the face every day by the butcher and they put this plan into motion. And how would they stop Branwyn's powerful family from finding out? You know, Bran, the Crow King, the Giant, with all their armies. Well, these advisers had thought of that. You see, they'd just stop all the ships going between Ireland and the British mainland. That'd do it. Genius. And that... That brings us bang up to date. Gwern, the son of Mephollock and Branwyn, is a toddler. Branwyn has been having an awful couple of years. King Mephollock is being ineffective at controlling his nobles. And all the Britons on the Island of the Mighty are blissfully ignorant about what's happening in Ireland. They are just flouncing around, doing all the usual royal, posh, ancient people stuff, which is probably exactly what you would imagine, but with a go-outdoors membership card for all Bendigaithran's massive tents. And so, we come to today's story. Let's begin. Now a few years into this whole affair, and the Irish nobles had probably got pretty used to the new normal, there was only so long you could remain actively worried that Branwyn's family would notice the complete stop in shipping, and... Well, if they hadn't after a couple of years, then they probably never would. So, they let their guard down, they relaxed, and life in Ireland got back to normal for everybody but Branwyn. Now, Branwyn had reached the same conclusion. Her family would never notice. As she slaved every day to make the meals for the court, not once did her brothers decide to pay her a visit, see how she was getting on or even send a message. Those brothers, Bendigaithran, Manawedan, Nisian, 
who had happily married her to an awful man as though she were one of their pieces in the great game of Talbot that was international politics. An Evnishian, of course, whose violent rage had so upset the Irish that it had sabotaged their attempt at peace, and now couldn't even be bothered to check in on her. But those same brothers were, unfortunately, the only chance for her, and for the son that she loved, whatever the circumstance of his birth, and however cruelly he had been taken away from her by his father. But those brothers weren't going to work that out themselves, were they? And so Branwyn would have to use her own skills. And after many months, she began to develop a plan. Now do remember that her lineage was related to the old gods. And in the polynucleotide chains of her family's deific DNA flowed a little bit of power and strangeness. And she would use that to her advantage by using an option unavailable to most captives. She would channel her genetic powers and unleash her inner Disney princess slash Dr. Doolittle. A truly terrifying combination. What do I mean? Well, a little starling came to her kneading trough and she treated the bird with kindness complimented it on the wonderful iridescence of its plumage, gave it the odd scrap of food, sang sweetly to it, and over time she became friends with the bird. And months passed, and slowly but surely, in a sequence of my fair lady-esque lessons, Branwyn taught the little bird to speak the language of humans. That is, Welsh. As the horrifying day-to-day grind of the captive life went on around her, Branwyn put her heart and soul into this project. And slowly, achingly slowly, the bird learned her tongue. And now to Branwyn its words could be understood. And Branwyn told the bird about her brother, the brother who would stand out, the places where he might reside, of his enormous stature. And then, when she was sure the bird understood, She tied a small letter to the bird's wing, explaining her situation, and sent it on its way to Bran. And the starling flew. It crossed the sea and it came to Arfon, where Bendigaethran the giant was holding court. And I'm going to pull us out of the story there, because, yes, she taught it to speak, but then tied a letter to it, which seems to make the whole speaking part redundant. Okay, well let's just say that it's a bloody good achievement to teach a bird to understand enough language that it can follow your directions, so maybe Branwyn was a bit concerned that the Starling's accent was a little too strong for her countrymen to understand. And that makes perfect sense and is no reflection on her or her language classes. Furthermore, at the time, any talking bird might have reasonably been interpreted as some beast from the other world or some magician's trick or something. That happens a lot. So a letter signed by Branwyn gave an added legitimacy to its message. Now that detail probably wasn't bothering you as much as it did me, but anyway, there's an explanation for it now, and I'm sticking with it. The starling flew fast and true, and it reached Bran directly. And soon he held the tiny letter in his gigantic hands. And, in a manner reminiscent of Senor Chang, he peered at it with narrowed eyes, trying to make out the words. 
And as he read them out, as he took in the details of Branwyn's treatment, his expression grew dark and terrible, and a white-hot rage began to race through the body of the gargantuan Crow King. As well as anger, there was grief to hear how his sister had been so treated, and I hope there was little guilt too, that he had given her away, that he had led her into this, and most importantly, that he had not once checked up on her. But now he knew action was swift. The call went out. Messengers were sent to every corner of the land, to every cantrip and district, to the leaders of the cities and to the rural chiefs, to all the great and the good of the island of the mighty. And the whole island was called together, in the greatest council that had ever been. It was made clear that attendance was absolutely not optional. Everyone was to muster. The levies were raised, and with a tremendous bustle of activity, the quiet of the land was shattered, and the warriors of the 154 districts of the Island of the Mighty were called together. When they were gathered, Bran took counsel as to how they should respond. There was no dissent, no disagreement, no suggestions that a strongly worded letter to the Irish should be issued first. No. The people spoke with one voice. The island of the mighty was off to war. They would free Branwyn, and they would have their revenge. It was agreed that seven good men would be left behind to rule in the absence of the king. And I, your leaden-tongued English narrator, am going to try and say them all. There was Havive here, and Inig Glau Uskiv, and Ivig, and Fedor, and Ilishman Gurn, and Hlasar, son of Hlasar Lyskinawid, and with them the young lad Pandaren Davad. And heading up them all was Caradog, who would rule the island in Bran's absence. But all the other fighters in the land, they were off to Ireland. And very soon, a vast armada set sail across the narrow Irish Sea. And at that time the sea was narrower even than it is today, for this was before the greatest floods came and washed away kingdoms on either side. And the water was shallower then than it is now. And all this was quite convenient, because Bran was a bit too large for any boats of the time, but he was just about large enough to stride across the seabed. And so the king of the Island of the Mighty led his invasion fleet on foot, wading through the waves, accompanied by a vast number of warships at his side. Ireland was about to feel the wrath of the giant king. cut to Ireland, to the court of Mephollach, who was going about his business as he always did. His feelings about his imprisoned, brutalised wife are unknown to us, but he was hardly likely to be guilt-racked. He was probably having a good old time. 
but he was distracted from whatever it was he was doing by his swine herds. For they had come to their king with a matter they thought he should know about. Yes, my dear men, what is it I can do for you? The swine herds looked at each other nervously. Sire, you've got to promise not to laugh. What is it? Well, you see, sire, we were at the seashore, and on the sea, there's trees, a whole forest swaying in the wind. Mephollock raised his eyebrows. Oh, okay. Anything else? Well, now that you mention it, sire, yes. There was a mountain on the sea, a mountain with a high ridge on it, and on the either side of the ridge there was a great lake, and all of it, the forest and the mountain, they were getting closer and closer. Right, said Mephollock. Well, that does sound very odd, but what it all means, I have no idea. He looked around at his advisers, the courtiers and chieftains. They looked generally nonplussed, and there was a shrugging of shoulders and a shaking of heads. Well, whatever it is, it's coming from the Island of the Mighty. Maybe Branwyn knows about it. Might as well try her out. And so they sent someone into the kitchens to go and ask her. Branwyn listened to their strange description of the sights on the sea, and as she did, a rare smile graced her lips. She felt real, concrete hope rising in her breast for the first time in years. For all that she had suffered here, for the injustice of it all, it was finally coming to an end. And for those who had wronged her so, well, for them, there was to be a reckoning. So, what do you think it is, my lady? asked the messenger. Well, firstly, said a newly confident Branwyn, I am not a lady and she indicated her worn garb, thick with accumulated grime from her toil. I was stripped of that title. But I do know what those people saw. It's all the armies of the Island of the Mighty on their way here. They've heard of my punishment and my dishonour, and now they're coming. Mm, But what was the forest? The masts and yardarms of all the ships... Oh, oh, that that does kind of check out. But what about the mountain? That? Oh, I think you'll find that that mountain was no mountain at all, but a man, my brother, striding across the sea bed as there was no ship big enough to contain him. By this point, little droplets of nervous sweat were beginning to form on the brow of the messenger. He probably had enough to go on with, really, but they should probably get the whole thing. And what about the high ridge on the top of the mountain, and those lakes on either side? Best guess? That was him casting his gaze to this island. The ridge was his nose, and the two lakes his furious eyes. Right, well, said the messenger, now trembling and desperately plotting how he could avoid breaking it to Mephollock. And yes, this whole description is ridiculous, and it doesn't make sense in terms of the kind of scale that's been established for Bran. 
it's totally incongruous, and while the swineherds couldn't tell a mountain from a giant, or ships from trees, or lakes from eyes, what the hell did they think his mouth was anyway? And why would Branwen be able to piece the reality of this together from this bizarre description any more than one of the Irish could? But please, I implore you, just set all that aside for a moment, accept this part of the story the way it is told. Please do that on my behalf, because I, your humble narrator, am so obviously struggling with it all. Anyway, back to the story. The messenger told Mephollach what Branwyn had said, and Mephollach turned white. And all of Ireland was soon in a fearful panic. The troops were mustered. The king and his nobles went to the shore for themselves, and there they could see the sheer size of the force arrayed against them. Those advisers who had so eagerly condemned Branwyn years before now cowered pitifully and talked immediately of retreat. This desire for retreat which the Irish spoke of was not a position of cowardice so much as it was one of realism. Mephollach looked around at his advisers. What would you have me do now? he asked, as strong and decisive in leadership as ever. We must cross the Liffey, sire, put the river between us and them, and then destroy the bridges. There are lodestones in the river, and the great magnetic power of them all will pull the nails out of any vessel that attempts to cross. Hmm, said Mephollach. Well, honestly, they can probably sail around Liffey and march in a different way. So even if this does delay them for a bit, it feels like putting a little rainbow-coloured sticking plaster over the gaping hole at the top of your neck when you've just been decapitated. But honestly... I wouldn't be Mephollach, King of the Irish, if I started questioning things and making decisions. So, the strategy is, heroic retreat across the Liffey. Let's get on with it. And all of the men of Ireland retreated across the river, taking everything they could with them. The troops of the Island of the Mighty landed, found the country abandoned. In no time at all, they marched to the Liffey. And yes, the lodestones would stop them sailing across, This was true. Their magnetic power would destroy any vessel. And the bridge? The bridge was destroyed. They pondered for four, maybe five minutes. And then Bran lay himself down over the river, his vast body stretching from one side to the other. And across their king, the troops marched. And when they were done, Bran picked himself up, dried himself off. The Crow King and his warriors now stood unopposed on Irish grounds. The whole of the country was laid out before them. Branwyn would be released, and revenge would be theirs. They've crossed the river. They didn't even have to go round, came the message to Mephollach. Oh, Mephollach turned to his council of oh-so-trusted and skilled advisers. Well, what now then? They're here and in the distance they could hear the drums and the war cries, and they could see the towering, terrible figure of Bendigedran. Um, um, sire, let's, let's just, let's just give in. Let's just give in. And that was that. Faced with insurmountable odds, the Irish agreed. They would simply surrender.
can't imagine what it must have been like to be one of the messengers tasked with approaching the assembled might of Bran's armies, watching the giant get bigger and bigger the closer they rode. And I don't know what message Bran was expecting to receive from the Irish, but what came to him was a message of surrender. How did it feel for the messengers to deliver up their country to the invader? Was there shame? Was there relief that there wouldn't be any fighting? I don't know, but they must have known that this was a turning point for their country. The terms of the surrender they offered would be this. Firstly, they had brought Branwyn with them, and they returned her to the invaders immediately. Finally set free, she went to embrace her brothers. There was a whole emotional reunion. But secondly, the messengers said to Bran, Mephalloch wishes only good for you. As recompense for the injustice that has been done to Branwyn, Mephalloch will grant kingship of Ireland to Gwern, your own flesh and blood nephew. Furthermore, the boy's father, that is Mephalloch, will give himself up to your custody, throw himself on your mercy, and you may hold him wherever you wish, in this land or even in the island of the mighty. A fairly comprehensive surrender, you might think. Now Bran considered the unexpected offer carefully. He looked at the men around him, who had left their homes and families to come on this expedition with him. He fought it over. You shall not let me rule here. It must be my nephew. Well then, my answer to you is that I must consult on this offer. But until I have done so, you shall get no more answer from me. And consulting might take rather a long time. His voice boomed and filled the air. And none of this, he gestured around at the assembled host, none of this will be halted in the meantime. The messengers gulped at the giant's words. Okay, we'll get you the best response that we can. Please just wait for our return before doing anything. I will wait, as long as you return swiftly. And at that, the messengers left, empty-handed, Branwyn having been returned. Bran's refusal of the surrender was met with despair amongst the Irish. They had been sure that it would do it. But they needed to make a better offer. Now we must imagine that what happened next was one of those late-night, caffeine-fuelled, pizza-ordered-to-the-office brainstorming sessions. Metaphorical flip-chart pages were torn off, plastic coffee cups were scrunched up, loud and angry debates had, and pens thrown at walls. Ideas were seized upon one minute and then rejected for being ludicrous the next. Most of the time it seemed hopeless, but at the height of tiredness, full of stimulants, and with ties well loosened, one plan was seized on by the desperate group. He's never been in a house, right, guys? said one noble, clutching desperately at anything. What? said Mephalloc. Well, he hasn't. He hasn't, has he? He's too big. Yes, he is. And another one latched onto it. I know where you're going with this. I reckon we could do it. Do what? said the king. We could build him a house. That is the downright most... But yet another advisor seized on the harebrained scheme. Yes, yes, we've got great architects and masons and woodworkers. We could do it. A really, really big house. I bet he'd love that. Can you imagine? 
you've lived in tents all your life and then wow you're really inside and you can stand up and stretch your giant potentially irish crushing arms out and be all ooh this is roomy it had been a long night dawn was approaching they didn't have anything else yes yes that's it we've got it by golly you are a genius and the whole room was then in agreement and one voice came from the back of the room and if we get him into a house well that might provide opportunities how do you mean exactly asked mafolok well sire remember hlasar you know the giant who we trapped in an iron house and we got him and his children and his wife drunk and then we tried to burn them all alive and we succeeded in killing the children but him and his wife escaped yes actually i do remember that pretty well said mafolok well when bran accepts our offer we'll have a feast inside the house and then bran and his troops might let their guard down ah said mafolok finally catching on i see leave the details to me sire said the unnamed irishman and at that dawn broke the irish had a plan the messengers returned to bran have you decided to better your offer asked the crow king his vast forces arrayed all around him the messengers gulped and they relayed the offer everything is before and a house a house you'll build me a house you lock up my sister for years beat her cut her off from her own son treat her with such fearful dishonor he looked at branwin who was beside him now and now you wish to offer me a house to make this right this maybe wasn't going the way the irish had wanted it but it was branwin who pulled bran aside branwin who was free now had achieved all that she wanted and while part of her dearly wished for revenge mostly she was happy enough that her son would take the throne and happier still to be reunited with her family even evnishian whose original anger towards the irish seemed much more justified in hindsight and branwin didn't want her family to die in a battle she didn't know then what would become of her son or of the irish that she'd grown to love in that first blissful year and who hadn't betrayed her she couldn't bear the thought of bloodshed and losing those she'd only just found again this was enough and she counseled her brother so and he listened okay let's see if you can build this house then it turned out that the irish absolutely could build the house a house not only big enough for bran but with one room big enough for all the irish forces and another for all the people who had come from the island of the mighty which really makes me wonder if bran had actually cared about the house thing before at all or maybe he had cared but he'd been brushed off with you know clenched teeth a sharp intake of breath and a it'll cost you mate with a shaking of head tell you what we'll do get you a nice tent instead the house was soon completed 
There were 100 columns inside it, supporting the house, and on each column, two bags were hung. Big bags. And before Bran's people came to the great feast, an Irish warrior was placed inside each bag. Now, those of you who listened to the first branch of the Mabinogion may recall that people in bags also featured there, though in a rather different context. So, people in bags seems to be a bit of a strange theme. But anyway, this was the cunning plan they had. Get the men from the Island of the Mighty drunk, sneak out of the bags, kill them. And no, I don't really know why the guys weren't just hiding around the corner. Maybe they knew Bran's people would have some sober guards outside? Yeah, that sounds eminently sensible, and you know by now I am desperate to explain the little oddities away some way or another. So that's why there were guards outside who would remain sober, but let all the bigwigs in, and then kill them off while they're pissed. Probably. I don't know how long this house took to build, but all the while the people of the Island of the Mighty waited. They weren't going anywhere. However long it was, finally, the day arrived. Evnissian was first to arrive at the newly constructed hall. He didn't arrive with the others. Despite his earlier actions having been somewhat vindicated by this turn of events, well, he was still a thoroughly dislikable sort, and there was definitely a sense that while the Irish actions were, of course, horrible and totally unjustified, this was also some of his fault. So, while he was still with his people, he was also kind of separate from them, and thus he arrived first. He strode in, looked around at the vast space which would indeed accommodate his brother. If he was impressed with this feat of Iron Age engineering, he certainly didn't show it. No, he cast fierce, ruthless glances around the place instead. Now this was Evnitian. Casting fierce, ruthless glances around places was a central aspect of his whole MO. But on this occasion, his ruthless glancing fell upon something which piqued his interest. This sack, he said to one of the Irishmen who was there to greet the guests. Yes, said the Irishman, in the most innocent-seeming voice he could muster. What's in it? asked Evnitian. Oh, flour, common flour, hung around the house. You might not know anything about ancient Irish storage methods, but me, you see, I'm an expert, and it's 100% flour. Evnitian walked to the sack, prodded it. The man inside tried not to make a sound, tried not even to breathe. Flour, eh? And now we must remember that this was the Evnissian who so brutally and graphically cut the lips and ears and eyelids of fully grown horses. The Evnissian who was descended from gods, whose sister could talk to the birds, whose brother was a giant. Despite appearances, this was no ordinary slightly angry man. Flower, it's just flower. Evnissian felt in the bag until he found the head of the man inside it. Sorry, I mean, the flower's head. How did they think this was going to work? Never mind. Evnitian felt the bag until he found the man inside its head. And then he squeezed. 
For one like him, it took but an instant. He felt his fingers sink into bone and then into brain. There was a loud crack and a slump from the bag. Evnishian turned to the Irishman who had watched this scene, unbelieving at first, and who was now shaking with terror at the horror of it. The horror which had only just begun. Evnishian gave a wide and horrible grin. <laughs> and how about this bag? Flower? <laughs> Evnishian was enjoying himself immensely. He took his time as he walked towards the next side. And yes, it really feels like somebody should have stopped him, or at least tried to flee, but they were waiting for a signal. They couldn't hear. And the poor man who was trailing around, repeating flower, the man who was heading for a Lovecraftian level of insanity, well, he just couldn't deal with any of it. And no, as I said, I don't know how they expected it to work. Flower must really have been hung around a lot, we must assume, and most people wouldn't look twice at it. And maybe Evnissian was just really good at spotting this kind of trick. But whatever, the Irish plan was now in disarray. As Evnissian reached the last bag, he squeezed. This one, this one had a helmet on. And Evnissian's fingers slid through that helmet like a hot knife through butter. This was no prolonged Viper versus Mountain. Nope, the man died instantly. And his work done, Evnishian turned to the gibbering wreck of an Irishman. And he sang a little rhyme, which was very clever in Welsh, as it used a pun on the word flower, meaning both warrior and flower. It was very funny, at least to Evnishian. And he smiled his broad smile. And about this time, the rest of his family turned up, along with all of their troops. Wow, what a place, they said, marvelling at the vast emptiness into which Bendy Gaveland stepped. And they took up the positions at their feast. The men of the Island of the Mighty sat on one side of the house, and the warriors of Ireland, those who hadn't been unlucky enough to be assigned bag duty, they sat themselves down on the other. What exactly Bran thought of the house is unrecorded. Given that he'd been strong-armed into this whole peace deal by Branwyn, he wasn't overly impressed. Hmm. I suppose if you were being generous you could describe it as bijou, he might have said, but didn't press the issue. Now you might think that this would be the point where Evnishian would reveal the deceit of the Irish, pull open a sack to reveal the treachery, show how he had protected them all, and so would quite reasonably provoke a conflict which could not be quelled by any amount of spacious house building. But he did not. Perhaps he believed that he'd done enough to show the Irish not to mess with them, and perhaps he had tired of the violence which he'd instigated, wanted it to end now. So he mentioned nothing. Mafolic and the Irish, of course, had been informed of what had happened, and now they were sitting in that hall with the grisly corpses of their fellows all around them. This was unbeknownst to the Britons, who were availing themselves of the feasting opportunities with quite some gusto. I doubt Mafolloch made any decision. That wasn't really his style. But someone did, and they decided to cut their losses. 
they had to consider the sheer strength and danger of Avnitian who was onto them. And Bran really did seem to want to make peace. So that is what they would do. And over the next few hours, surrounded by the crushed remains of their fellows, the Irish talked. And a genuine reconciliation seemed to occur between the two sides. Good as his word, Mafolic gave up the crown of Ireland to his young son. And honestly, the toddler could probably make better and more informed decisions than Mafolic was capable of. And Gwern was still a toddler. But now he was invested with the power of kingship, and we assume some arrangement was made until he came of age that satisfied both parties. This young boy, born of both lineages and now King of Ireland, represented the last best hope for peace. For all that had happened with Branwyn, Mafolloch loved his son, and his son loved him. Branwyn was tearfully reunited with the boy, and then Bran got to meet Gwern. I suspect children meeting Bran could very easily be overwhelmed by him. But the boy reacted to his giant uncle with only delight, and the two were soon getting along very well. Gwern was also introduced to his regular-sized uncles. First Manoedon, then Nishin, and then Evnishin. Evnishin, finally redeemed. He said that he would like to be friends with the boy, and so Bran scooted the lad off to Uncle Evnishin. Peace had finally been achieved. As Gwern toddles over to Evnishin, the lighting in the background of this scene darkens. The movements of people slow like treacle, the noise of feasting is muffled. Evnitian is left illuminated. He turns to camera, says to himself and to the audience, The outrage that I will now commit will be expected by no one. Time speeds up again. Noise returns. Evnitian turns back to Gwern, whose arms are outstretched for a hug. And Evnitian stands, reaches down for his nephew, and in one rapid motion he picks the boy up by his feet and flings him head first into the fire which rages in the centre of the hall. There's one moment of absolute silence. Time seems to stand still and in that moment we can look around at the frozen faces of horrified onlookers as the boy lands in the fire with a sickening crunch. And then... Everything snaps back. There is a tremendous uproar and the whole room is in motion. Branwyn tries to jump into the heat of the fire after her burning sun. But it's too late already. Bran sees this and with one hand he holds Branwyn back. And as he stands he picks up his cartwheel sized shield with the other hand. There is shouting and panic and anger. Blows begin to land. Weapons are drawn. Mafolloch looks on, disbelieving. His only son is murdered. And then he screams in pain. Branwyn screams in unison with him. And Bran is holding her. And within mere moments, Nishin and Manoedon are fighting for their lives against enraged Irish warriors. There's no hope for Gwern, whose broken body is already burning. As for Evnishian, he is nowhere to be seen, having fled the hall as soon as the commotion kicked off. Now, you might think that the two sides had common enemy in him. 
but there wasn't the opportunity for such nuance. For the Irish, well, there were now 201 dead Irishmen in that room, murdered by the people of the island of the mighty. And Bran's people were going to defend themselves, and they hadn't forgotten what the Irish had done. A full-scale battle broke out in the house there and then, an epic and bloody clash of arms between the Irish and the men of the Island of the Mighty. The fighting raged on, and as more from both sides died, necessity to avenge the fallen grew, and the mechanisms of honour and revenge kicked into overdrive, fueling an inexorable juggernaut of death and destruction. All-out war had come to Ireland. A quick aside and a jump out of the narrative. This is the point where I almost put a break in the story and split it into two episodes. So, if this is all getting a bit too much and you'd like a break, maybe here's the point to do it. But if you have the time and you are as engaged with this story as I was when I was telling it, then please do continue to listen. And back to the story. Now to all eyes, it seemed a stark inevitability that this war would be won by the men of the Island of the Mighty. For the Irish had been cowed into surrender before because they rightly feared the strength of arms of the invaders. Their numbers and their giant king who could swipe through ten men with one blow from his sword. Yet, now battle was joined, The Irish fought valiantly throughout the first confused night and the following day. And a terrible battle it was, the awful din of it, the air full of the smell of blood, the metallic clanking of weapons and armour, and most of all the air was filled with the shouts of warriors on the attack and the screams of the injured. And after that day of battle, many from both sides lay dead. But eventual victory for the invaders seemed assured. They retired to their camp, confident that on the morrow they would mop up the remaining forces and then Ireland would be theirs and vengeance would be served. They tried to find Evnitian, of course, but he was keeping a low profile and so the retribution that Bran and Manoweden would dearly wish to dole out to him, they would instead save for the Irish. They awoke the next morning. There had been no trouble in the night, The cries of the injured were mere whimpers now. The dead were seen to, and the men of the Island of the Mighty prepared for the second day of battle. The land was bathed in fog, and the early morning was silent. No war cries came from the Irish side. Bran led his troops through the mist to where they expected their opponents to be. But there were no sounds, no blasting of horns... It seemed as though, having seen the hopelessness of their position, the remaining Irishmen had fled, just as Evnitian had. They would have to be rounded up. But, hang on. Bran listened. There were sounds. A clink of armour here, a shuffling of feet. Bran drew his mighty sword. And then... From the mist, the Irish came at them, from all around, hundreds of them, a torrent of warriors, who attacked with barely a sound, so different from the bellows and the challenges they'd issued the day before. Manoweden found himself face to face with a massive warrior, whose mouth was inexplicably open, as if screaming at him, but from which no sound emerged. 
Manoweedon screamed full and proper back at him, but as he deflected blow after blow, his opponent responded only with silence. And as he fought this well-built warrior with a great red beard, Manoweedon felt a disconcerting sense of deja vu. He'd fought this man before. He was sure of it. But he finally got the upper hand, and his opponent fell to the floor. He was clearly in agony, as blood poured out of him, and his face showed that he was screaming, and yet he was silent still. Watching the man die, creeping dread set in for Manoweedon. Not the adrenaline surge of combat, not the fear of injury or death. No, as Manoweedon watched the mute bleed out before him, an icy realisation rushed over him. He had watched this very man die before. Yesterday. The cauldron of rebirth. The cauldron which Bran had given to Mephollic as compensation. Manoweedon recalled the last episode of the podcast, the words the narrator had said, that the cauldron will return life, and that those brought back will be just the same, except that they would lack the power of speech. And as he came to this realisation, another mute warrior who had fallen yesterday stepped forward to challenge Manoweedon. The Irish had not held back in their use of the cauldron. They piled bodies into it and set a fire alight so their armies could be replenished. All those who had fallen, all those whose skulls Evnishin had crushed, they had all been brought back to life. Gwern, though, his body had been burnt up and there was no return for the child. Just the warriors. And let's set aside any of the existential questions such an experience might have raised. Right now, the warriors just weren't in a place to question if they should do something different with their lives, or to properly process what losing their voice meant, how a society with so many voiceless would function. These were questions that would have to be addressed, and after the war they could reflect on what it meant to have died and returned to life. But for now, they had to fight, so they could have a land to live on. And there was of course the issue of honour and vengeance. How satisfying would it be to revenge yourself against the man who had killed you? And so, the undead Irish had taken to the field again that morning, and that second day was far harder for Bran's forces than the first. They were tired. The warriors of the cauldron were not. They had lost some of their numbers and friends and comrades in arms. The Irish had not. When they realised what was happening, they tried to get the bodies of the Irish out of the way so they couldn't be regenerated. Bran grabbed handfuls of the fallen up and carried them far behind the lines, but doing so took him out of the fight. It wasn't enough, and the great host of the Island of the Mighty lost ground were forced back. And as the day's fighting wound down, the Irish were once again kindling the fire under that great cauldron of regeneration. One man stood back from the fighting and watched the slaying of Bran's warriors with an increasing sense of panic. Evnishian. It's difficult to quite pin down the motives of this monster, who had saved his people from the trap with the bags, but who had then burned his own nephew to death, and who had started this whole conflict. But what is evident is that his hatred of the Irish was all-consuming, 
and the violence he wrought on Gwern was surely done for the Irish blood in the innocent young boy. Evnitian had anticipated the fighting, hoped for it. But his betrayal wasn't meant to cause the downfall of his people. But now, as he looked round the battlefield, this was precisely what he saw. The dead and the injured everywhere. Men who would never return home, while the Irish would wake up again the next morning, their army at full strength. All those odds he'd calculated on, they'd reversed completely. Evnitian was close to tears. This wasn't the way it was meant to go. Fuck that cauldron. If he could take down the Irish himself, he would, but his supernatural strength would only carry him so far. He was not invincible. He couldn't stand it. It all seemed to be so inevitable now. Day after day, the Irish would fight and be regenerated, and more of his countrymen would die. Who could have known that all his scheming, his violence, his murder would lead to this? That life would reward all his awful deeds with something that he hadn't wanted? That wasn't how it worked. No, no, there had to be another way. And a scheme dawned on him. I'll save them. I will save them. And down he went to the battlefield. Gently he crept in amongst the corpses of the Irish, covered himself in blood and gore, and lay down amongst them. And presently, two Irishmen came and they picked him up. They didn't notice anything amiss. They had a lot of corpses to go through. They couldn't investigate each one. Into the cauldron he went, and bodies were soon piled on top of him. In that ghoulish place, covered in viscera, the smell of death that he had caused all around him, Evnitian stretched out his powerful limbs. He braced them against the walls of the cauldron, and he pushed with all his might. There was a creak and a metallic groan. He might have strength and magic, but this cauldron was no common artefact either. Dredged from a lake by a giant and granting life, it was not to be broken easily. Evnitian strained, his blood pumped, his muscles tensed, and he pushed and he pushed. And the cauldron started to move. Evnitian redoubled his efforts, exerted himself to the very limits of his body's abilities. And as he did so, something broke with the strain of it all. The cauldron exploded into four pieces, corpses bursting out of it in all directions, huge pieces of flying shrapnel smashing into the Irishman tending it. And as it burst, so too did Evnitian's heart. And when all the carnage was done, he lay in the wreckage of the cauldron, amongst the corpses, as dead as any of them. Brand's people didn't know what Evnitian had done for them, so they didn't start to perform a dissection of his character. This brother of theirs who had so callously murdered his own nephew and had seemed to doom them with that act, but who then, in an act of self-sacrifice that he may or may not have intended, tried to save them all. Though I think there's no doubt the scales of morality were still heavily weighted on the evil side 
when it comes down to assessing Evnishim. But what Bran's armies did realise fairly rapidly is that the cauldron was no more. There were far fewer silent warriors the next day, and the day after that there were no familiar faces of those who had been slain, and the Irish numbers seemed quite depleted. And now my thoughts turn to those warriors, brought back from death itself, slowly adjusting to the idea of a life of silence, only to meet perma-death on the battlefield the very next day. What an illusory taste of immortality. But back to the story. Now, after all of this, the war was waged in full. While the cauldron had been working, the people of the Island of the Mighty had had their advantage stripped away, and now it was hard to see who would have the best of it. Coming to terms might have suited both sides, but by this point, that was no longer an option. Things had gone too far, and total war raged on. Bendigirdran, the giant crow king, spread his dark wings, gave out a blood-curdling war cry, and a shadow of death and destruction fell across all of Ireland. Mytholic was struck down and died a fittingly ignominious death, along with many of his advisers who had counselled him so poorly. Bravery, honesty and nobility didn't save Nishian, who was soon left as dead as his evil brother. It was a long, hard combat, and no mercy was given. The rage didn't subside. Prisoners were not taken. Bloodshed and murder and killing, killing it seemed at times without end. But there was an end. The last Irishman fell. With his death, the war was over. A slaughter of such magnitude that it beggared belief. There were no Irish left. They all lay dead at the hands of the men of the Island of the Mighty. Perhaps you would expect that this would bring rejoicing to the side of the Island of the Mighty. But this was no victory. Only nine then remained from the Island of the Mighty. Bran and Branwyn and Manoedan, they had made it, along with Gliviai, Taliesin, Inog, Prideri, Hylan and Gliviai. But of those, Bran himself was in bad shape. For all his giant stature, for all the countless warriors whose life he had ended, he was not invincible. And he had been struck on the foot with a poisoned spear, and now the toxin coursed through him. What a land of desolation the survivors found themselves in. They rested a while in what was now a very eerie place, stripped of all other human inhabitants. An abundant paradise for the scavengers who feasted equally on the dead of both sides. But for anyone else, it was a barren wilderness, broken up by the odd abandoned village or town. This... This was not a victory. Bran was dying. That was evident. Cut my head off, he ordered, getting on his knees. What? asked the others. You have to. 
Why? Because that is what will happen. That is what must happen. Now where Bran got his powers of prophecy from, given they were so notably lacking in his plan to marry Branwyn off and in his subsequent invasion, I don't know. But somehow, in these moments of his death, he had insight into the future. And in those last moments, he outlined what must be done and what would be done, even if it didn't make a great deal of sense. Take it to the White Hill in London and bury my head there, looking towards the sea. And as long as I remain there, I will protect this land. Now, that sounds easy given what you've gone through, and it will not be difficult for you. But it will take a very long time indeed. How do you know? Just listen. When you return to the Island of the Mighty, you will go to the court at Harlech. And you will feast there for seven years. The birds of Rhiannon will sing for you. And you will have all the food and drink you wish for. That's a long time to be feasting. But that's just the start. Because when you are done at Harlech, you will go to the island of Gwales. And there, you will feast for 80 years. And there I will be with you. For you will take my head, and all will be well with me. We shall not age, as long as the door towards Cornwall remains shut. But when it is opened, as it shall be, I will truly die. And then to London you will go, and you will bury me on the White Hill. So begin, now, cut off my head. The survivors were oh so weary. And Manoweden gave in. If the king says it was to be, then it was to be. And his brother's head was cut off. As the head separated from it, that huge body slumped, and it hit the floor with a tremendous sound that shook the earth for miles around. It was a very lifeless head that they held, dripping with blood. (laughs) Despite the prediction of it being fine, this seemed most unlikely. They left that sorry bloodstained land behind them, leaving countless ships behind on that shore, for they were barely enough to crew one. It was a strange, sad voyage. Back they went to the Island of the Mighty. What an ignominious return it was. But at least they were there with other people again. The many civilians left behind. And in London, there was Caradog, and the men who had been left with him. They would have to go to him first, to break the awful news. And then word would have to be sent to the families of all the many, many dead. They could say that they died heroic deaths, but that would be hard to justify, given the tremendous slaughter. No family in the land would be untouched. They landed on Anglesey, but to see the shore of their island again provided little relief. And for Branwyn, it was that which finally broke her. Almost everyone she knew was dead. They had died in the most hideous way she could imagine. One of her brother's heads was carried in a bag as a reminder of all that. And all of this was, somehow, because of her. This had all started with her marriage. Not that she had ever had a say in any of it, but nevertheless, in her mind, it was for her that so many lay dead. She had believed that the depth of her tragedy was the time she was being held captive and abused, and she tried to escape that. But when she trained that starling, she had never imagined it would lead to this. She had never imagined her son dead, 
her brothers dead. She'd imagined a freedom, a return to life. But now there was no life to return to. There was nothing left for her, here or in Ireland. And soon after stepping ashore and finding nothing more there than she had in the country she left behind, she was afflicted by a terrible melancholy. Her heart broke and she died. For her brother Manawedan, this was of course a tragedy. But tragedies were ten a penny to him these days, and he, like all his companions, was practically numb to it. They buried Branwyn in a four-sided grave on the banks of the river. And then the seven of them who remained journeyed towards Harlech, carrying the head. From the court there, they could get word to Caradog and start to tell the awful news. On the way they passed a company of people. We're some of those who went to Ireland, they said, not mentioning that they were the only ones who would ever be coming back. And they asked, is there any news to speak of here in the Island of the Mighty? Oh no, said the people, and the groups parted. But as they did so, one man of the company of commoners turned around. Oh, Actually, there is one small thing. When you've been away, Kazwaflon has overrun the country and has been crowned king in London. What? what? asked Manawedan. This is a joke, right? And I do not know whether those people were taking the piss at the warrior's expense, or if this was a reflection on just how little the politics of the higher-ups mattered to your average person. How much of a difference did it make to them who was in charge? But whatever the reason for them almost forgetting it, no, it was not a joke. But what about Caradog and all the men left with him? Ah, yeah, said the man. Caswafflin, see? He'd probably been planning this for some time. He had a magic cloak. Cloak made him invisible. All people could see was the sword moving and they fell pretty easily. You know, there's magic in these lands. Caradog was his nephew. Caswafflin killed him. Well, he says he didn't, actually. He says that Caradog died of grief because of not being able to protect his men and that his heart broke from sorrow. Believe what you want, I suppose. That Pendaran Dovid, though, the young lad, he survived, ran away into the forest. But that doesn't really matter now. Caswafflin's in charge, and I don't know how he'll take to the likes of you returning. Figures. Figures. This was probably a make-or-break moment for the sanity of the survivors. After everything, after everything that they had done for this island, after all the sacrifices the men had made, and they had lost their island to this upstart with a magic cloak and a sense of timing. Who could have blamed them if there and then they had all succumbed to despair as Branwyn had and Caradog was alleged to have done. But they didn't. What reaction could they have to that if they weren't to go insane? Nothing to do but to fulfil Bran's prophecy. So they continued to Harlech, 
and there, without other diversions, they feasted for seven years. Already by this point, they had slipped into a world that was not quite our own. The new king bothered the survivors not. Food and drink was plentiful, and no one was really asking where it came from. As predicted, three birds came to them, the birds of Rhiannon, and they sang to the men, the sweetest songs they had ever heard, so it seemed that all other songs were like record scratches on a blackboard in comparison. And the birds flew far out to sea, where they dived and glided and played in the air, and yet their song was as clear as if they were right there with the men. And in what was almost a blink of an eye, seven years were up. And in this time when they were dancing to the tune of prophecy, fate and enchantment, they realised it was time to move. So they took a boat to the small island of Guales. And upon that island they found a great and magnificent hall, with open doors and a closed one. The closed one facing Cornwall. And they ventured in. And as they did so, the head they carried with them sprung to life. Bran's eyes opened, and he was back with them. Well, at least his head was. He seemed perfectly fine, able to hold a good conversation, and not at all concerned about his situation. And in this dreaming, trippy state of enchantment, this didn't seem unusual to them. Now, said Manoweden, remember... We mustn't open that door. And then more feasting began. And we're right back now at the start of our last episode. And as prophesied, they spent 80 years unaging, in bliss, able to remember only the good, the haired and much as member of the party as any of the rest of them. Until, finally, that time when Highland stood up and declared that there would be shame on his beard, prestigious and mighty as it was if he did not open the door. And then as we began with last time, the memories came crashing back. And very quickly, it was as if the intervening decades of magical birds, of joy, of Bran being returned, those memories faded like the morning dew, and the men were left remembering the war as sharp as if they had just returned. Now there was one last part of the prophecy. They had to fulfil it. There was nothing else at all to do. So they set out for London, and on the white hill there they buried Bran's head with much ritual. And this is where this story ends. With the seven, Manoweden, Gliviai, Taliesin, Inog, Pruderi, Gliviai and Hylan, standing on the white hill. And in the ground by their feet, the head of the giant who had been their king. And while his head remained buried there, no ill would come to the island from over the sea, so powerful was its magic. But it would not remain there forever. But the arrogance and hubris of the man who dug it up eventually, a man by the way that I wager you'll have heard of, that tale will have to wait for another day. As will the tale of the tower that was eventually built upon that hill. The Tower of London which is still famed for its ravens to this day. Now there is an odd postscript to the tale. Ireland, completely unpopulated after the war, remember? Its population had all perished. 
Well, not entirely. For there were five women who hid in a cave. Who were all pregnant, conveniently. That's just how it is. And those women gave birth to five sons. And the sons grew up and, well, yeah. Then the events of that Lonely Island Mother Lover song took place. An island was repopulated. And those sons divided Ireland between them. And so the five provinces were formed. And that is finally it. The end of the second branch of the Mabinogion, which is told of Branwen's marriage, of Evnitian's rage, of the mistreatment of Branwen at the hands of the Irish, of the army of 154 districts who went to avenge the wrong done to her, of the terrible war that came afterwards and of the seven years in Harlech, the singing of the birds of Rhiannon, and of the eighty years of feasting with the noble head. But this was not the end for these survivors, and there are more stories of them yet to be told. But the stories of all of those who perished in the war were over, along with the reign of the Crow King. So there we go. End of Branch 2. Now a lot has happened this episode, and I really do hope you enjoyed it, despite the length. If you've made it here, you probably did. If you didn't, commiserations, but I suppose you can't hear this. Now of course there was a lot of story, so there's a lot we could discuss here. What I am going to try and do is park the origin of the Mabinogion. We've covered that in a few previous episodes, and we'll be looking at it in future episodes as well. So for this inexpert discussion section, I'm going to concentrate on this story itself. The text that this story comes from is actually quite short, even though I've managed to squeeze a couple of episodes out of it. One of the key differences is that in the text, events that I've taken a lot of time explaining here, and are pretty big as the story goes, are skipped over or explained in a one-off line. For instance, the battle with the Irish isn't really described as such at all. All it says, reading of course from one of my English translations, is that such victory as there was went to the men of the Island of the Mighty. That's it. Details are scarce. Another area where this is the case, but I didn't concentrate too much on myself, was Kaz Waflon's takeover with his invisibility cloak. It feels like there's a whole story there itself, but it's just glossed over as something that happens. And I really do love the people who say, there's no news, oh except. Now if you thought the story felt a tad disjointed at times, this might be because it's an amalgamation of several pre-existing oral tales. But I think it works reasonably well actually as a coherent whole, though this aspect will become more apparent when we start the next branch, in however many years time that'll be, where there are some serious questions about the timelines. Conversely to where I have expanded on it, some bits in the original text I have taken out because they didn't seem to be of much interest to modern audiences. Firstly, there's a kind of obsession with naming characters or events as part of a triad. This this was actually a big feature of medieval Welsh literature, and it's found in other texts. Some of those texts actually written by Taliesin, apparently, who's a character in this story. 
An example of this, which is mentioned in the story, is the three people who broke their heart from sorrow. They are Caradog, sad about all his men being murdered by that cloaking device of a sword, Branwyn, obviously, and and another chap who isn't in this tale at all, because these texts pull together from the wider Welsh mythological corpus or shared universe. Similar to this, there's also a lot of listing of people, which I included somewhat, but tended to gloss over where I could. Later on in the Mabinogion, and one of my favourite bits of the whole book, is a list that takes this to some glorious extremes, and I really hope at some point we will cover that. Now, the other element that crops up a lot, but I leave out, is onomastic asides related to events in the story. And no, onomastic doesn't mean that, get your minds out of the gutter. Onomastic refers to the naming of things. For instance, the modern Irish for the city of Dublin is Balia Afa Clear, apologies on pronunciation, which means the town of the hurdled ford. Hurdles here being wooden fencing panels that you can put down and walk across as a kind of bridge. And that's what the soldiers did on Bran in the story. So apparently, that's where the name of the city comes from. But, of course, it isn't. Now, these are interesting little asides, and clearly they were a big part of the tale for medieval audiences, or at least tale-tellers, but especially when you haven't even heard of the place, and when the connection is even more dubious than that, I thought they could probably afford to go on the cutting room floor. So moving on, one interesting aside that occurs, the sack thing. That is a trope that crops up in lots of different stories, warriors hidden in something being slowly killed off. Ali Baba and the Forty Thieves is probably the most famous story featuring a very similar episode. It's obviously a much later story, but from a different part of the world. It seems to be a storytelling trope that's got quite a lot of appeal. Now how do I feel about this story? I've said already, I really enjoy it. I really like how it's looking back to a pre-Anglo-Saxon, pre-Roman even island. One united kingdom, admittedly with Scotland left out, but told a time where for centuries that hadn't been the case. And in that I really like the way you end up with this link between a mythical Welsh king and the Tower of London. It is almost certainly a coincidental link, but it's lovely to imagine that those ravens there now are somehow linked to this buried giant from the past. Oh, that head, by the way, and the person who dug it up. I'm not sure we'll ever actually get round to telling this as a story, there's not really enough of it to do so, so I'll give you the spoiler there. King Arthur dug it up. Basically, he dug it up because he thought that defending the country was his job, and no one else should be allowed to do it. I'm really not a massive fan of King Arthur, by the way, which you might be able to tell, and which might crop up in some future episodes. There's quite a lot of crossover here between Arthurian legends and these stories, and the two bleed into each other. There's Arthur stories in the Mabinogion, and bits of this story, particularly the trip to Ireland and seven people remaining, are paralleled in Arthurian legend. And as Orphurian legend draws on elements of this story, this story in turn adapts parts of 
Irish stories that may be earlier, but we definitely have written versions of them earlier. There's definitely a crossover between the two is the case. For instance, in the cauldron, in those bags again. It's not simply that one is a direct takeoff of the other, but there's definitely an element of cross-fertilisation of story ideas between Welsh and Irish tales. Now, the story itself. I still feel awful for Branwyn, the only named woman in the story who just gets right royally shafted. I hoped things would get better for her, but no, they just decline. Now, while I feel awful for her, I really like to hate Evnitian, but he's also a fantastic character. When I first read this story, I was engaged, I suppose, it was all right. But I remember stopping and rereading the bit where Evnision froze Gwern in the fire. It just shocked me. Despite how bad he'd been back in the start and how bad we're told he is, at that point he's just saved them all. And it's unexpected. And from the perspective of narrative and character, I love it as much as I hate him. I've seen it questioned whether Evnissian has redeemed himself by the end, and I touched on that, and I hope I gave you my quite clear opinion during the story. But I do like how he's not evil per se. He's just a person. A despicable person with despicable goals and willing to do pretty much anything to achieve them. But yes, he can also have real concern for the people he loves. People are multifaceted. But they can also do really bad things, and that isn't an excuse. Like many of the Mabinogion stories, I enjoy the comfortable juxtaposition between the fantastic elements and the everyday. It gives it that modern fantasy feeling, and without the gods and the inescapable fates that loom so heavily in many Greek stories, still managing to capture the element of tragedy in the war and the unstoppability of it. I'm more than happy to discuss that slightly nuanced and maybe questionable distinction I've just made over a beer sometime. In this story, the resurrection cauldron, the bird, the lodestones, the invisibility cloak, the giant, all just little pieces of the plot that fit in quite naturally. The feasting for so long, the island off the coast, the door opening, the memory loss, all less so. But that does make for a wonderful psychedelic adventure. Actually, I went to Harlech recently, looked out at the sea from the castle ramparts, and ate some very tasty ice cream and listened to the croaks of the jackdaws. Not quite a seven-year feast, but well recommended anyway. I have a lot more I could say about this, but this has gone on long enough. It's one of my favourite stories, and I hope that despite the length of the episode and the wait between the episodes you've still enjoyed it. Before I sign off, some thanks are in order to everyone who helped with pronunciations. That's Anne-Marie O'Neill, Ellen Longcommon, and at Bendy Gaidfran on Twitter. All the awful pronunciations that remain are very much despite their hard work. Thanks are due as well to the people who have supported the podcast on Patreon. There are two short supporters episodes there now, and another one coming out sometime soon-ish but you only donate when I actually do an episode. Thanks to Amy Sommer, Aaron Cotton, Alexandra T, Kat, Jen Bottom and Sarah Howells for joining on Patreon. It's genuinely really humbling and I'm so grateful. I've got some more artwork in the pipeline now and hope to be able to share that with you soon. 
Also, if anyone is interested in doing some art based on a particular story on the podcast, do get in touch. I'm going to reiterate that next year this podcast will be more frequent, but for the moment I will just work as hard as possible to get other episodes out as soon as I can. For the next episode, we'll be going to Northumberland for a story about swords, horns, windswept castles and decisions. You can follow Tales of Britain and Ireland podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. There's also a website, talesofbritainandireland.com, where there's a page for each episode which contains more information including illustrations, asides and recaps, along with other additional bits and pieces to explore. The intro music was written and performed by Alice Nichols, and you can find all the other musical credits on the episode page on the website. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do share it with others or give it a review, as those really are the best ways to help us out. You can also join Tales of Britain and Ireland on Patreon to get extra members' episodes. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me again soon. Music